Did, did we just blow something? <laughs> So, <laughs> so anything left unsaid, unresolved? I think there are two different questions in there. One has to do with in some way what the texts are really about. And the second is how one communicates this, you know, to friends or people who might be interested. One of the things that's interesting about reading some of the original texts after one has practiced is that when they're read in the proper environment, you know, when the mind is, is settled and is quiet and is concentrated, um, they come alive in quite an extraordinary way because the texts themselves are simply the teachings of the Buddha, which are pointing to the nature of the mind and the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. And so the texts themselves are not religious in the sense that we usually associate with that word. It's not about a belief system. It's all about this amazing clarity of perception about how the mind works and the nature of reality. And so especially for people who have done as much sitting as you now have, There are times, for those of you who are inclined, that I think going back to the original sources would be really fascinating. Uh, they have to really be read slowly and carefully. Uh, a lot of the English translations are not that great. You know, there's a lot of, often there's a lot of repetition in them. And, uh, so if we read them with the expectation of being entertained, <laughs> uh, Robert Ludlum is better. Um, but if we really read them as a pointing, as a direct pointing, and, and really reflect on what it's saying, it can illuminate our experience a lot and actually clarify and deepen it. So that's one whole part. It's to understand that the texts themselves are not religious. 
in terms of how to communicate about the practice, about our understanding, that's really a great art. You know, it takes a lot of practice. Sometimes people get so enthusiastic, you know, in the fresh energy of a retreat that there's kind of this overflowing of wanting to tell all one's friends or family about it, assuming that they're interested. <laughs> sometimes they are and sometimes they're really not. You know, somebody might ask you how the retreat is and all they're really saying is hello. If you go on a three-hour discourse on the nature of selflessness, <laughs> it's not appropriate. And so one, one piece in this art of communication is really to listen carefully enough to what people are really asking, you know, to see whether they really are interested or not, or just you know, saying hello. There's a further and wonderful it's really an exercise in mindfulness and sensitivity. Even when we feel that a person is genuinely interested, to be able to let go of our own agenda in order to be able to see what the right skillful means is, what's the right vocabulary. You know, to actually kind of get into a person's mind from the inside. It's a great game. You know, just, just the delicacy of relating, of being open and listening to a person, and just to see where we can actually make contact, you know, and make a connection, talking to what really is important for that person. One of the amazing things that's revealed in the study of the texts and is directly applicable in communication is that if you start any place, it contains the whole. You know, when you read the Four Foundations of Mindfulness or the Eightfold Path or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment or the Three Characteristics or the Five Hindrances, any, any starting place at all as you go into it, it unfolds to include the whole Dhamma. And that's also true when we're communicating with people, not to think that we need to start in a particular place, but rather to get inside and see where that person actually is. And what, you know, what are the concerns? What is, where is the suffering? Where is the interest? And begin from that place. So these are these some kind of general principles. <laughs> Bring them down to two even more general principles, which are really at the, at the essence of it. Uh, one of them is listening, and the other is metta. And if we can listen, and there's genuine metta, it just it just connects. I uh, 
of the many things that you can take away from, from this retreat, I hope that one of them is the understanding, even to some extent, of what actually this quality of metta is. Now, what's, what actually is that feeling? So that we have a clear sense of that mind state, you know, of that feeling state. And genuinely practicing it in our lives. Because when, when actions flow from that, it, just, it becomes a divine abode. We start living in the Brahma realms. Yeah, and it's just very interesting to watch in the quality of our speech and our, of our interactions how often we slip out of that place of metta. Yeah, and so if we can notice the slipping out, we bring ourselves back again. Did you hear that in the back? Talking about how the root word, the root meaning of the word religion is from Latin religio, meaning to uh, union, reunion uh, with what is true. And so in that sense, you know, there's we can really understand the meaning of, of what a true religion is. There is a problem, though, given the overlay of meaning that has come to that word. I don't have a problem with actually expressing it in another way, you know, because unless it's made very clear that that actually is what we're talking about. That's what I always do. Because right. I get asked that question right. from time to time, and I always lay out right. these terms. <laughs> right. Because it's a very sharp yeah. Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The question was about the this teaching of the Buddha of how we're shaped by our thoughts, created by our thoughts, led by our thoughts. And yet on the other hand, in the meditation, not taking our thoughts seriously. It really has to do with our relationship to the thoughts. 
those thoughts that we give energy to, it's very important that we're choosing to give energy to wholesome thoughts because they do have a karmic, a karmic impact and they lead us. As you know, I mentioned earlier in the retreat, depending on our understanding of things comes the kind of thoughts we have. From the thoughts come our actions. From actions come all kinds of consequences. So on that level, really taking care with which thoughts we act on, which thoughts we invest in. If there's no identification with the thoughts, if there's no investing in them, and we're in that space of seeing them arising and passing, then the content doesn't matter at all. Then they're just empty phenomena. They're like clouds in the sky, just as, as you've seen you know, for many months now. Um, and that's very freeing to see that the thoughts are essentially selfless, selfless, empty phenomena. You know, there are no roots unless we latch onto them, unless we, we give them some power. So both of those are true depending on the level of our relationship to them. It's really interesting to just, you know, again, this, we've said it, we've said it often, just to create that space in which we're watching this show <laughs> of phenomena simply arising and passing away. And we create this tremendous spaciousness in our minds then. And what then to see, to see where we get hooked, where do we get seduced. You know, we're watching, 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 and then all of a sudden, psh, psh, gone, we're lost in that one. What is that about? You know, what are the qualities or the particular kinds of thoughts that catch us again and again where we get caught, forgetting that they're just empty thoughts? Or feelings, or they're no different. It's all just phenomena arising and passing. And some we're very spacious with, and some we get really identified with. I think, I think that would be fine to note. The question was whether one could note the actual way the mind is relating to certain emotions which have a strong pull. For example, noting the clinging or attachment or being pulled. Um, 
I think that would be fine to do. Also, what you could do is notice how the relationship to those emotions change when you actually are noting the emotions carefully. And, and by noting carefully, I mean paying attention also to the quality or the tone of the note, because that's going to reveal a lot of how you're relating to them. So all of those, I think, uh, are really fine. One can develop a, a very strong investigative mind, and it does not, it's not limited to sitting posture, and it's not limited even to intensive retreats. Some of the most incisive moments, they can be at any time in our lives when there's something strong going on. If it's something strong, that makes it a very good moment to look carefully. (laughs) Precisely because it's so strong. And we can bring that investigative quality. What is happening here? How am I getting caught? How am I getting hooked? I think that for for somebody so inclined, you know, as a way of learning, I think the study of Pali would be terrific. Because just the, the tiny little bit that I've done has really been illuminating. And so somebody who really had an interest and a talent could I think really explore the teachings in in quite a deep way. In terms of studying Buddhism in a more formal setting, I don't particularly have a lot of confidence in that because you could get one level of it, but most of the people who teach Buddhism in university setting in some sense, it's quite strange. They actually don't like people who practice. You know, because from the academic model, that takes people's objectivity away. You know, and <laughs> so it's, it becomes quite dry, you know, in the sense of somebody teaching it without having practiced it and understood it from the inside. It becomes just an intellectual exercise. That's... Although that, it's not to say that there aren't any, any good practitioners who are also teaching, but I think generally speaking that's true in academic. Uh, the question of, of doing metta toward somebody who has died, that's only, only when it's done for the purpose of attaining jhana, that you can't go into jhana 
on a dead person, doing metta towards a dead person, but in terms of sending the metta and sharing merit and doing all of those kinds of things, it's fine. I think it's quite a wholesome thing to do. Within this context, we often use that term synonymously, meaning that sense of I that's created when there's a strong identification with anything. My body, my thought, I'm hearing, I'm seeing. Whenever we identify with something, in that moment, there is the creation of this I sense. And so within this context, we could call that the creation of the ego or the creation of the self. The the difficulty comes because in psychology the word ego is used differently. And that's where it gets confusing. It's not so much concerned with this I sense or the process of identification. It's rather concerned like developing a strong ego or ego structure would mean really creating a strong balance of factors of mind. So there's a real stability and strength in the mind. That is no different than really what we're doing here. For people who are not practicing with this strong psychological ego, there could either be identification or not. There could be wisdom or not. Do you follow? So there there could be this sense for people who are not into meditation and the wisdom of understanding selflessness, people out in the world may have a very strong and balanced state of mind. So in that sense, a strong ego sense. And then depending on the level of real insight and wisdom, there's either an identification with that taking that to be I, or not, seeing it quite impersonally as just balance, as just strength, equilibrium. And the the whole practice is actually the mind becoming stronger, very strong, unshakably strong. I really don't know. And it's a question that has uh, come to my mind before. Um, Certainly the 
the first concern should be to act in a non-harming way. And that should be the reference point, you know, in a way that really does not harm other beings. And then in real life, all kinds of situations arise. And it's very difficult to know, and I don't know, It's hard to imagine, personally, for any reason, doing medical experiments on animals, regardless of the benefit. Just as, <laughs> in terms of a per, in terms of a personal choice, you know. And I think, in some sense, this is what it all comes down to. Um, we each make these choices and we each just weigh, weigh the different things that are of value to us. I was at a conference last year uh, in Los Angeles of different, it was a conference that, this Harmonium Mundi conference that the Dalai Lama was at and where he actually heard that he had got the Nobel Peace Prize. And there was this panel of different people from different traditions. There was a, there was a moderator for this panel who, his vibe was almost like that of a uh, game show MC. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of strange. And he asked each one of us on the panel we, we each spoke a little bit, and then he asked each of us a trick question. He asked me when I sang last. <laughs> it was something to that effect, so I went into my singing saga. <laughs> but he asked one of the other people on the panel, he said, the image is a little unpleasant. <laughs> But he said, if by pulling off the wings of a butterfly you could end world hunger, would you do it? <laughs> the person he asked said, ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me think anyway, and I was kind of glad he hadn't asked me that. <laughs> But afterwards, I was really thinking about that, and it's just this dilemma of, you know, how do you weigh this? And although I, I didn't come to any sort of absolute conclusion, but the direction my mind was going, you know, in that, in that train of thought, that in some way, it's inappropriate to quantify suffering. Now, what do you say? Well, one butterfly is okay, and ten butterflies is not. 
you know, or a hundred butterflies. You know, when you begin to think of it in that way, the whole context of the question doesn't make sense anymore. Because somehow suffering can't be quantified. So I just throw that out as kind of seeds of thought. You know, it's, and I think it's a, it's a really useful thing to think about because we are faced with these questions. That's not actually so much noting, because <laughs> that's hoping. <laughs> right. I think I think that if one is clearly aware that, I mean, the noting really refers to the recognition of what's actually present. That that's the function of noting but as a kind of coaching in the mind, you know, or reminding oneself, just take a few deep breaths, relax, soften. I think that kind of reminding of oneself briefly uh, could be helpful. Um, The simplest way of relaxing is not to try to make something different, not to try to create another state, but to create a lot of space for whatever it is that's going on. And so if, for example, we're out in the world and we're busy and we sit down and there's just this intense energy going through and it feels agitated or chaotic, can we be accepting, just see that that's what's happening? That's really the way of relaxing rather than having an agenda to change that quality of energy. And that really is not so hard to do. It's just, in a way, it's just remembering to do it. Okay, let let me just feel this, let me be with this. And then things, then things really settle down by themselves in quite a natural way. It's the non-acceptance of what's present, which is always the struggle. Thank you. 
there are a few, few angles to this. One is that there are different ways of relating to the storyline. We can relate to the storyline with the emphasis on the situation and have our mind bounce back and forth between our own particular stuff and the circumstances outside which have caused it and really playing in that realm right, of, of our own reaction and the conditions outside. That's one way of being in the storyline. Another way of being in the storyline is having it come up in the mind. You know, whether it's thoughts about a certain person or thoughts and feelings about a person or situation. But taking that and then looking to see how we are relating to that storyline, how we're relating to the thoughts, how we're relating to the emotions. So the content is present but we're looking at it from the perspective of how we're either caught or free, or how we're identified or how we can unhook. So the story is present in our mind, and we're aware of it, and we're aware of all the feelings around it, but we're really engaged in the process not of considering the external conditions around it, the external side of the story. We're really taking it as a manifestation in our own mind, in our own heart, and working to see where the suffering is and where the freedom is. I find that this latter way of working actually is much more effective in resolving the external situation. Because if we can get unhooked in ourselves, then we're much clearer we can then go and communicate and do whatever needs to be done in the external situation, but we're doing it from a free place, rather than from the charged place. So that's one, one side. The other side has to do in terms of whether one gets into the story at all or simply notes, you know, note, 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 is how persistent it is, how, if one is able to really note it, even quite a few times, but we're noting, 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 and then it goes away and we're back with the breath of sensations, I don't think it needs further investigation, at least at that time. But if something, you're in the third week, and it's still, it's still churning around, it might be worth looking a little bit on the psychological level, on the content level, as a way of unhooking. Now, so a lot depends on how, how persistent and how charged it is. Two weeks. <laughs> 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 no, 
No, I mean, this again, it, it depends on the context, you know, whether it's on a meditation retreat or one is out in the world. And it also does not have to be an either-or situation. You know, there are times you're out in the world and you're, there's some big issue coming up. You can use both approaches at different times. Sometimes you really take a very straight meditative approach of simply noting. See what happens. Maybe that will be enough to release it. At other times, if it's really strong, you, know, you start investigating the psychology of it a bit. I just have found it very valuable to make the primary area of concern and interest where the mind is suffering and where it's free. Really focusing on that and then dealing with whatever has to be dealt with. When it's possible to do that. Does that make sense to you? you know, are we on the same wavelength? Because it's also, it's also fascinating. It's like, it's really applied Dhamma. You know, as we've said many times, the Buddha said he teaches one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. So we can really use the tools of our practice, the tools that have been developed, to understand what is going on. We can really get to the root of our minds in any situation. It really is not limited to the hall or to sitting posture or to a retreat. Because our minds are the same. We, We carry our minds. Our minds carry us. Something. The Dhamma really is about how we live. You know, it's not, it's not, it's like our life. It, it is life. It is, it is the nature of things. So just to keep this sense of real investigation, real looking carefully. And suffering is, is such a great signal. You know, it, it can really wake us up. You know, we're going along you know, lulling ourselves to sleep, something happens, in some way we can be thankful for it. Because it really, it's like that noise in the beginning of this sitting. Not that we have to go looking for it. <laughs> uh, I know this may be some kind of job for me for <laughs> and uh, sometimes it's helpful to reflect on the lineage of the teachers of this particular issue. Valuable to know how it is that such a diverse group of people that were teaching at that time offer together and are now attached to this practice of being still a little 
you know, one of my teachers had had the most remarkable talent of taking any question and then answering what he wanted to answer. <laughs> and it often was totally unrelated to the question. <laughs> so anyway, I just want to add anything. Uh, add something that you didn't ask, <laughs> but you should have asked. <laughs> In one sense, the teachings seem to be very singular. You know, there is this... uh, We have all studied, you know, in in a particular lineage and a particular technique. It's really the technique which is singular. The teachings are really the essential teachings of the Buddha found in all the traditions. I don't know how you experienced listening to Suryadas speaking from Tibetan angle. We had many long discussions. The essence is just the same. It's the same teachings, it's the same taste, it's the same understanding of suffering and of freedom. Countless forms have evolved. You know, in Burma, in Thailand, in Tibet, in Japan, in Korea, in just every place that the Dharma has has flourished. Hundreds and hundreds of techniques. In Burma alone, in Vipassana, Manindraji told me that there are over 50 techniques of Vipassana that that he was familiar with. And so it's not to uh, become attached to a particular technique or think that the technique itself is the essence, because it's not. The technique is just a way, and there are many, many ways of understanding basically the Four Noble Truths, of opening to suffering, of seeing what suffering is, how it is conditioned, the end of it, and how to free oneself. And so in that sense, one can really rest not in, not in a narrow vision of it all, but rather in this great, vast ocean of the Dharma, in which there, there are many forms in many ways. That's just as a kind of background. And I think that's really, is, it's really going to be one of the great accomplishments, I think, of Western Dharma, of of getting away from the narrowness of view. It's not not getting away from right view, you know, from really deep understanding, but to see that that encompasses many, many ways. When I first went to India, I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand. 
And I had had a, just at the end of my stay there, I had just beginning to get interested in meditation a little bit. I had a really deep experience listening to somebody read, it was actually a Tibetan text. Something happened in my mind, there was a real opening, transformation took place, and it set me on this direction. I knew from that point that this is what I wanted to pursue. I came back to America, moped around for a little bit, (laughs) and figured out how I could get back to Asia. I went back to India actually looking for a Tibetan teacher, because this experience had happened with the Tibetan text. I went up to the mountains uh, in India where I had heard that there was this one Lama. I hadn't traveled in India uh, much before that at all. This was in mid-December. And the plains in India, even in December, it's actually the the nice time of year to be there. It's quite pleasant. I got up to the mountains in my kind of tropical clothes. And this Lama I heard had lived you know, the bus station landed at, the bus station was at the bottom of the, the mountain. He lived all the way on top. <laughs> I get off the bus in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> you know, I was in the middle of winter, and, you know, I asked uh, somebody to lead me up you know, to where this llama lived. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people didn't go up there in the middle of winter, and anyway, the Lama had long since gone south. <laughs> and so then I went, somebody had given me the, the address of a Hindu ashram. I went there and I was, you know, it was really the beginning of my quest. I really hadn't been with a teacher before. I ended up in Bodh Gaya. Uh, after quite quite some unusual circumstances, kinds of things that can happen, that often happen in India, a lot of stories. I was in I was in New Delhi, not having connected with the Tibetan, not having connected with that Hindu ashram, thinking, well, I'll go back to Thailand where I was in the Peace Corps. And I was walking down the street to the airline office to get my ticket to Thailand. I'm just walking along. And at a certain point, there was some force which just stopped me, and I couldn't take another step forward. I was like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like some invisible being was holding me back. It was very strange. I mean, I don't usually have these kinds of experiences. <laughs> so there I was kind of... <laughs> so I figured I can't go forward, I'll go back. I said, okay, I can't go to Thailand. Maybe I'll go to Bodh Gaya. <laughs> I went to Bodh Gaya, and Munindraji was there. And this was, at this time, there were very few Westerners meditating or in Bodh Gaya at that time. And it was amazing. As soon as I met with Munindraji and he described the practice of Vipassana, what was so interesting to me was that the practice seemed the perfect expression of what I had experienced with that Tibetan text. You know, and so from the very beginning, I knew that so many of these divisions and differences 
in the words, but the actual experience of what we do to become aware and to free the mind, the actual experience was just the same. And so when Munindraji explained the Vipassana practice to me, it was just this immediate coming home. It, was, it seemed so clear and so simple that if we want to understand things, we have to sit and walk. <laughs> so, <laughs> the simplicity of it is so self-evident. If we want to understand our minds, what do we do? We sit and observe it carefully you know, and accurately with a real depth. Munindraji, in turn, his teacher had been Mahasi Sayadaw of Burma, who was really kind of the grandfather of this whole lineage, you know, that, that used uh, the mental noting and used the rising and falling of the abdomen as, as a main object. So that's, that's the, the tradition out of which it all came. Did Sharon mention to you how she ended up in India? In the, uh, it's a great story. She was at, and she came to India when she was 18. She was kind of this young, bright-eyed. <laughs> uh, she had been at Buffalo University and knew she was going to India, and Trungpa Rinpoche had been visiting, giving a lecture there, and she told him that she was going. You know, and who should she study with? And Trungpa, he just thought for a minute and he said, it's best to follow the pretense of accident. So she went and she followed the pretense of accident and also ended up in Bodhgaya. And and Carol also was there at at that time. And actually within a year or two, Fred was there. So there was a whole gathering of people. I don't know if that actually said anything to your question. Continuing on with that, I'd like to ask you about INS. And I always want to know your history about it, but when you um, it became important to you and Sharon, were the uh, seminarians still here, or was it just a vacant church? We had come back. We'd come back in 1974 from a rather long stretch in India. And that was the year, the first year of Naropa Institute. Uh, and that first summer, it was the summer of 74, Ramdas and Trungpa Rinpoche were leading these huge classes, each, you know, the, a couple of thousand people. And I was, I had begun my teaching there. And from that summer, the circuit of retreats, people were so interested in actually doing the practice. After a year, we thought it would be nice to have a three-month retreat, because all we had been doing were ten-day, you know, or two-week. And so we rented this place up in Bucksport, Maine. Uh, and actually, it was uh, where Ubudurakita first uh, came to retreat. I was in the Institute, you Yeah. Uh, and so we did a three-month course there, but there was all, in our mind, the sense, 
it would really be nice to have a more permanent center because we've just been going around to these different places. And we asked the uh, the sisters, I think it was some, the sisters were running that place in Boxport, uh, if they knew of any place. They suggested contacting the archdiocese here. And so friends who were involved in the search lived in Massachusetts. They called up, do you have a monastery for sale. <laughs> when we came and looked at it, there were only 12 monks, 12 brothers living in this whole place. You know, <laughs> so they were really ready to sell. You know, it was much too big for them. And it was just amazing, even though from the perspective of these times, what we actually bought it for was minuscule compared to today's, the whole building and, and the 80 acres was $150,000. <laughs> but then, compared to what we had, $150,000 seemed, you know, we were all just back from India and had nothing. And it was quite miraculous how just enough came for the down payment and we were, we were $18,000 short of a $50,000 down payment. I was teaching at Naropa, just sitting in my apartment. This woman walks in, who just happened to be in one of uh, my classes, who didn't know anything about you know, the center or, or trying to start this place. She said, I just inherited some money and you know, I have this eighteen or twenty thousand dollars that I'd like to do something with. Do you have any idea? <laughs> do I have an idea? <laughs> no, no. But, no, this was, this was, I guess, the main chapel. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that much about how churches are set up, but something was out here. <laughs> you know, that, uh, oh, everything was not uh, not this altar, but this. I think the I think the priest used to come in from back there, and the people from town who came for service would come in the back doors. Yeah. It was quite amazing. We, we really came into this place and could really start using it from you know, right from the beginning. It, it, it's an amazing, amazing unfolding. The dishes. <laughs> the same dishes. <laughs> like the drapes. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, when we were debating, you know, whether, because it was a big step for us, you know, as I say, we. This group of people had very little money, and the place looked huge, you know, from that from that perspective. 
but the, the motto of Barry is tranquil and alert. <laughs> uh, so when we had gone to town and kind of just thinking about it, we saw that this was the this was so it was destined. <laughs> it's, it's samatavapasana, <laughs> tranquil and alert. One of the things which, which I'm sure you have a great sense of, and, and I know the feeling so deeply from uh, the years I spent in India. I was, uh, the years of my practice in Bodh Gaya, I was uh, staying in what was called the Burmese Vihara, which was not exactly a monastery, although a monk was in charge of it. But it was, it was like a pilgrim place for Burmese to come to visit Bodh Gaya, but in those years Burma was closed, and so no Burmese were coming. So they opened it to Westerners. And even though, I mean, the conditions were really quite bad. In the Vasudhi Magga, it lists all the, the good qualities and bad qualities of a monastery, of a place to practice. This one had all the bad ones, you know, right on the road next to a common water tap that all the villages come to and went on and on. But I was so grateful to have a place to practice. It, there was so much feeling of um, just appreciation and gratitude that there was a place where I could just sit and do it. You know, and I know that you know those kinds of feelings. Uh, I hope those kinds of feelings, <laughs> you know, come because it's really precious. There aren't that many places in this world, you know, where this can be done. Um, it's, it was a rare happening. All of this coming together. <laughs> Was there hope in your question? <laughs> we, <laughs> we spent a good part of last year um, thinking about and developing a master plan to really try to conceive of, okay, if we wanted to create an ideal place, what would we need to do to build, to change? A lot of time and effort went into just envisioning and, and brainstorming. And quite, a, quite an amazing process happened and document which came out of that. Um, so now it's really, it's, it's really a question of uh, just long-term fundraising. You know, there are there are some pieces we'd like to we'd like to create places where people could do long-term practice and because this building is not really s with the way it's set up in the schedule of courses through the year for people who would like to spend six months or a year it's disruptive 
you know, because there's this constant coming and going. So one part of the vision was to really have a separate buildings for men and women who wanted to just do long-term practice. Um, a big thing that's really needed is staff housing. You know, for people who are here long-term, uh, who are really serving and making, making this place happen, uh, it's quite a pressure cooker living and working, you know, all together. And so that's another, another part of the plan. Like to do some uh, pavilions in the woods, just a sitting pavilion and a walking pavilion, you know, so that in you know, reasonable weather there could really be the sense of practicing in the forest. The forest is so beautiful. Uh, there's a lot, we did a lot of work at trying to uh, redesign the traffic flow you know, of all the bottlenecks uh, that happen in the building. So, so there's a lot of creative energy that went into it, and hopefully over the, over the years that will happen. New curtains for the meditation hall. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, the place could really, you know, with the right resources, it's wonderful now, and it could really become Really, a, a really beautiful place for practice. Like to create more single rooms. That that's that was another big one. Uh, as those of you who are in some of the odder shaped rooms <laughs> know, uh, <laughs> some of them were created uh, <laughs> Work could be done in that area. It's really inspiring for me just to think of, you know, over over the fourteen years or so that that IMS has been going, fifteen years, how many thousands of people, you know, have really done amazing work here and just see that stretching into the future. and it's, it's a beautiful vision of what we can do. Just a couple of things with that. One is, certainly with states like a coma, I wouldn't assume that there's no clarity there. You know, because there are so many stories of beings who are in a coma and later come out of the coma and talk about a state of great clarity. It's just, they're not communicating. You know, and from the outside, it looks like they're not there, but actually uh, can be very present and very clear. Um, so as you say, with, with some of these altered states, we don't really know. It, it may look one way from the outside and be very different from the inside. It's said that regardless of the state of mind that's leading up to death, just at the time of death, something else happens, you know, which is said to be conditioned a lot by the kinds of actions one did in one's life. 
And so even that is very hard to assess. Somebody may be you know, in a particular state of consciousness right up until the time of dying, and then just at that time, due to the karmic force that happens, real clarity uh, can come if that actually has been practiced. I think that I think that uh, the surroundings of the person at the time of death is quite important. You know, both in terms of peaceful surroundings and the people who are with a dying person uh, can do a lot to support a wholesome mind state. Even if it's not apparent that the person is hearing it or responding, it's not to assume that they're not hearing it. I mean, in some way, most of the great teachers that I know in talking about death that if one has really led and cultivated wholesome states basically they're saying don't worry about it <laughs> you know, that the power the power of the practice, the power of dana, of sila, of meditation, is very strong. And it's, it brought us here. Somehow I have just the fact that, you know, within this whole Buddhist cosmology, we've all done this a lot already. You know, it's not like we're coming up to bat for the first time. We've done it zillions of times. <laughs> and evidently, last time around, we did pretty well. <laughs> So if one just kind of, you know, builds on that momentum, <laughs> I think it'll be fine. I remember I, I, in the early years of my practice, I, especially in reading about all this stuff, you know, I, I went quite panicked to Manindra. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> and he's, he was very loving and reassuring in the sense of just how powerful the karma is you know, of intentional acts of generosity, of morality, of meditation, of doing of, of uh, meditation. It's very strong. It's very strong karma. And so it's just rest in the lap of the Buddha. Would you say that uh, you would just take the, you know, contribute to the 
whether the use of drugs could contribute to a serious exploration of the mind. Um, I think that different drugs can give one an experience. You know, and there are many different kinds of experiences that, that come. Some of them very insightful, some interesting and not insightful, some not so interesting. <laughs> you know, there's that whole range. I don't think they're a path. And in the long run, that's what counts. You know, it's, it's really, as you have seen, what we're doing, it's really a whole transformation of understanding. It's a transformation of consciousness. We may get a hit of different possibilities, but then there's actually doing the work to actualize it, to live it, to bring the mind to that level of understanding in itself, not through some outside agent. And I, I think it's just, it's very important to understand that because I think people who have tried to use drugs as a path often end up in trouble. It's hard. I mean, they are generating karma because, you know, there is, there is the intention, but it's, it seems to happen a lot on an instinctual level without, without a lot of choice, discriminating wisdom, which is why the Buddha said that the human birth is so precious and that it's very difficult to attain human birth once one, you know, has has taken birth as, as an animal or in a lower realm. But also we're looking at huge expanses of time. You know, and so within this Buddhist cosmology, it happens. We've all been animals of all kinds, and we've all been in all the realms. And in that long period of time, it happens that just at the moment of death there is Maybe, maybe one of those random karmas come in, comes into effect. Um, and so this, it's a very expansive picture. Uh, in India, at the time of the Buddha, there were some ascetic practices where people thought that if they, they, they started living like either a cow or a dog, and they were called the bovine and canine ascetic practices because there was this belief somehow that that would lead to freedom and lead to enlightenment. <laughs> Needless to say, the Buddha was not too impressed <laughs> with those practices because they lead to <laughs> bovine and canine existences. 
uh, I think sometimes we romanticize actually animal realm because there's, there's great beauty you know to be seen in nature but when we look at the actual state of consciousness for the most part uh, it's much more limited you know. and so I, I don't think it's something to aspire to <laughs> but it's all it's all part of this very big dance you know, and so there are many of the Jataka tales, the stories of the Buddha's previous births, are births as animals. Well, quite heroic animals. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's nice. Did you hear that in the back? But somebody had asked Saida Upandita about you know how to help animals have a better rebirth, and he suggested that uh, chanting, just having the animal hear the sound of the chant, was could induce a wholesome mind state. You know, so. Instead of, or in addition to singing to your plants, you can chant to your animals. <laughs> okay, maybe just two last questions. From a deva realm to a hell realm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second question is very easy, <laughs> at least according to the Buddha. He said there was no beginning. It's beginningless. I mean, we, we tend to think of very linearly, you know, begin, something having a beginning and proceeding from there, but one could equally well conceive of beginningless. There's, there's no beginning point to it. <laughs> um, why not? <laughs> of how one goes from deva realms downwards, uh, the deva realms Sometimes people quite forget to uh, sit. (laughs) (laughs) So if you end up there, (laughs) please remember. (laughs) Uh, You know, there there can be lots. And again, it all depends on on the paramis. You know, if there's a strong dharma background, then the Dharma actually is practiced in the Deva realms. And Mahasi Saido had this beautiful little part of a book of saying how somebody who has practiced in this life 
that it's quite common for practitioners to be reborn in the Deva realms, and that often they forget for a while about the practice, but at a certain point they remember, and at that point it's actually quite easy to become enlightened, because the, the body and the intelligence and the mind are very refined. And so, for those devas who actually are there through the practice, you know, have developed wisdom in the past, enlightenment can come very easily. So it's a nice, nice, nice picture of things. If they don't practice and get caught up in the greed of the pleasurable things. It's the same as here. <laughs> yeah, last one. It's usually true, although it's hard to predict in every case because for the most part he likes to have people do the rise and falling, at least in the beginning, you know, until they're, they're established in the practice. Um, sometimes, on rare occasions, I've seen him, people come in and say they've been practicing at the nose, and for whatever reason, he doesn't say anything. That's not the usual response, but, but sometimes. Um, I've done both a lot and at different times. Um, at one time, I, I was working with my abdomen a lot, and I just sort of had this inclination, this was in Burma, that I just really wanted to be at the nose again. So one day I went in and reported my breath at the abdomen. And the next day I go in and report, it seems to be getting a little higher. <laughs> he didn't say anything. And then a couple of days later, mm, I'm feeling in my chest now. <laughs> he didn't say anything. Hmm, it's real predominant in the throat. <laughs> and I sort of worked my way up. <laughs> I don't necessarily suggest you try that, <laughs> but that's what I did at that time. Um, it's just different teachers have predilections. There are differences. I don't think it ultimately matters. Uh, often at the nose, the attention can get very, can get very one-pointed, so that factor gets very strong. My experience with the rise and falling is that it actually is more energizing. Sort of being down here seems to fill the system with energy, as opposed to the kind of sharp one-pointedness at the nose. In the end, it all comes out to the same. Um, uh, 
I don't, uh, you could experiment a little bit. I'm not sure that you would feel it unless you had really developed it there. Uh, Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with going back and forth. It can just create a lot of confusion, which is much more of a hindrance than just staying at one place or another. Um, so for the most part, I think it's good just to stay. If you're planning to sit with Upandita, it probably is a good idea. You know, to just practice with the rise and fall, and since that's his preference, uh, it—it's a little difficult in the beginning to make the shift, but it does not take long, and it's not—it's not such a big thing. You know, so, so you could just practice to get used to it. <laughs> it's a little hard to stop, but I think we will. I just wanted to say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for all your efforts in practice because I know <laughs> I know what it's like uh, and it's just tremendously inspiring you know it's really what this planet needs just a lot of people beginning to wake up, you know, to see what the causes of suffering are, both for ourselves and in the world, and freeing ourselves from those conditions. Thank you.